All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 40. We'll begin uh, in verse 7. Or actually, verse 6. <clears throat> now, just to catch us up to where we are. So, so, Job has just been confronted out of the whirlwind by God. And if you remember, God said to him these, these words. He says, you need to dress like action. You need to dress for action. Some translations say, gird up your loins, which means to get ready to do some significant work. And if you remember from last week, we, we looked at how the word theology has, has fallen on significantly hard times, that when we hear that word so often, so many push away from it instead and say, no, I, I don't, I don't want to have a theological discussion. That's, that's for the ether. That's for the eggheads. I, I don't want to wrestle with the things of God. And instead, I want to stick to the easy subjects and categories. Let's just agree to be friends. Let's just say we're Christians. That's easy, right? To be a Christian in this culture and in this world, that's just easy, right? And getting easier all the time. No. No, it's not, actually. And so, what a disservice we have done to the word to think that it only means to, to, to talk about these big words and these things that are hard to understand, to wrestle with things from eternity past. No, Theology is actually to live very much in the present and to wrestle very much with the presence of the Lord in our lives and what that means as far as how now we should live. And so we should all, we all, every single day, whether you like it or not, you are doing theology. Every day you wake up, every day you decide who is God that day, every day you decide who wins the worship and glory war with how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you love others, how you treat others, you are engaging in a theological discussion and enactment, whether you like it or not. And so, given that that's the reality, I would suggest it would be good for us to know what we're doing. It would be good for us to be cognizant or aware of what it is that we are doing and communicating with our lives and our actions. So how, how would we know? We just look at the stars, right? Doesn't Orion and Pleiades tell us which way we should go? No. Creation doesn't exactly tell us which way we should go. Creation just tells us that there is a creator, that we are smaller than we realize. Now, there is a revelation that actually helps us to know how then we should live in light of these things. What is it? There's got to be at least one legitimate Christian in this room just by odds. What is the revelation that shows us which, what, how then we should live? God's word. Now, if you're like me, you would say, oh, oh, man, come on. That thing is thousands of pages, multi-columned, which means it's actually two or three pages per page. Give me a break. How in the world could any normal human being take that? So, so there should be, there's a cliff notes, right? You ain't got to read all of it. It's the book of John. You should be fine. Well, how in the world could you understand the book of John without all the rest of it? How do you understand John 1 if you haven't read Genesis 1 and 2? Psalm 8. Job, for instance. So remember, I pushed against that 
We, our biblical literacy is very damaging to us. The, the fact that we don't take the time and the effort to actually engage God's word on a regular basis uh, is, is actually crippling us in ways that we can't, even, we, we can't even begin to predict or know. Now, am I saying that the best thing you could do is go do that, read the Bible in 60 days? No, that's not what I'm saying. And if you do that, well, kudos to you, you're awesome. I've never done it and don't know that I could, but I know some people who have, and it was rich, a rich blessing to them, but let's be more moderate. We should probably take a little more time to read God's word, and so there are one, two, and three-year plans, for those of you who don't wanna to be too ambitious, in which you can read through the Bible, and it's not necessarily start to finish. If you use McShane's, he's gonna actually locate you in four different places. He'll locate you, if you know anything about the Robert Murray McShane Read Through the Bible in a Year, he's gonna help you start with all of the beginnings. Creation, the beginning of uh, the return from exile, I think, uh, the beginnings of the church, uh, and, and the coming of Christ. So it's the beginnings of everything. So it's this beautiful pattern as you read that you're starting with all, where all of the things matter and start. Now there's plenty of options, but when we deny ourselves God's word, you are denying yourself the ability to rightly do theology. And how can you know him if you haven't read the whole story at some point? Whether whole or in part, some people have read all of the books at some point. You don't, again, you don't have to necessarily read it from start to finish, but if you're not familiar at least with the story as a whole, how can you say that you know God when he says, if you want to know me, I have revealed myself here? Even in Nahum, even in Obadiah, even in Job. And so this is, this is why it is important for us to realize that we are a theological people and that it's not a dirty word and that it's not about big words and that it's not about overly complex thinking. Although, I don't know about you, but isn't this an overly complex world? How many of you, when you go to the voting booth, man, you feel so confident you've got it right? Unless you're voting for Ross Perot, you don't. That's a joke, although I do, ah, never mind. But, <laughs> but that's a complex system, isn't it? How many of you feel confident that you know how laws get made? You know how the government works because you've, you subscribe to Brett Bard or IJ Review or CNN or MSNBC, man, you've got, because you've read the ticker at least two or three times this week, you, you know how what's going on in government. You feel informed. No, not even close. Because the, the system is ever-changing. About the time you think you've got it figured out, it changes, doesn't it? Well, that's the beauty of God's word. He is unchanging. His word is unchanging. His hope is unchanging. And that's good news to us in a swiftly, on a swiftly tilting planet where everything is in flux, it feels like. And every day something new comes out. Every day there's a new tragedy. Every day there's, we've moved on. We don't even wrap up anything anymore. We just keep moving on to the next tragedy, on to the next thing we can argue about. So I would argue that it is absolutely critical that we be a people not afraid of the word theology, that we would be a people who would dress for action. We would be a people who would want to encounter the terrifying but holy God so that we could bow in reverence and awe and learn what it means to be human and live a life in joy and peace, which nothing else offers to us.
So this is where Job has now found himself. He and his friends have talked ad nauseum about the God that they thought they knew, the God who operated according to the mechanistic, the God of simple math. Let's be honest. That's the God you want to. That's the God I want. I want the God of simple math until it actually falls on me. I want the God of simple math for you. I want the God of simple math to control you so that you stay in line and you behave yourself and you mow your yard and you keep your leaves out of my yard, lest your eyeball fall out of your head. But as soon as that guillotine comes my way, whoa, I just became a liberal. I don't know, no, the math ain't simple no more. The guillotine can't fall on me. And it's the perfect echo chamber. And we can't ever be saved from it unless someone enters. And God did in the form and the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, it's not simple math. I love you, despite the fact that you're my enemies. Is that simple math? No. No, that's fuzzy math, if you ask me. I don't know how you love your enemies like he does. To the degree that he does, I would never die for one of my enemies. I wouldn't even die for most of you, my friends. I can hardly sacrifice time for you We can hardly make time for each other. How are we going to die for one another? And so here we see that the God of not simple math, the God of love and grace and mercy operates according to what he has determined and what he has made. And he governs in wisdom and justice in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. He makes it rain in the desert where there is no reason for it to rain. Tom Oakey sent me a great article, which I had actually already seen, but it proved the point. It just rained in Chile, in this desert, and hadn't rained for how long? Decades? And all of these wildflowers exploded in beauty and a chorus of praise. And these people were drawn to it, wondering, what in the world? How did such beauty lay dormant for so long? And it caused people to pause, even the Washington Post, to pause and say, let's take a break from all the insanity and post a story. They didn't know they were praising the Lord, but they did. See, this God does not go according to our rules. He goes according to what he has determined to be best for all that he has made. And fortunately, that is the highest good. Our greatest joy, our greatest peace is for God to actually be God. And so he shows up in the whirlwind and he reveals these things to Job. And remember Job's response. He said, I don't give a rat's potato about all that stuff. You need to answer me and answer why I'm hurting. Remember, isn't that what Job said? No, what did he say? Who was here last week? He said, I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not speak again. He backs away. And he bows in reverence and awe, even though his questions are myriad. So, fortunately, God's not finished. He has more to say because he has more to teach. Remember, God is approaching him as a teacher, not an angry tyrant. He's approaching Job as one who loves him and saying, let me show you some things, Job. I used to have a professor who was um, a, a, a large angry woman who decided she didn't like me very much before she even really knew me. And I asked her, I said, why do you not like me? 
And she used to call me Wonder Bread. She said, Wonder Bread, because you are an upper middle class snot-nosed punk who has never had anything in his mouth but a silver spoon. And I laughed. I said, I said, Dr. Woodruff, I'm white trash from a trailer park in South Atlanta. I'm also from the ghetto. I, I grew up in, in uh, uh, these apartment complexes, and my father spent 29 years in prison. You could not be more wrong. And she cracked up like she's cackled. She just laughed, and she said, well, I sure had you wrong, Wonder Bread. And so, <laughs> and so, so it changed. She changed from one who was an angry tyrant to suddenly I was welcomed close in, and she began to tr treat me as a true teacher ought to treat, treat a student, as opposed to cutting me off every time I opened my mouth in violence. And so here God is not doing that. He was not the angry tyrant who had misread Job. He is the God who had always loved Job, who offered Job up and continued his suffering after Satan was satisfied because he had something to teach him because he loved him. He's not yet done. So as we begin this morning, I have to ask this question, and I think it's worthy of your reflection and, and something you shouldn't answer quickly. But what is your view of God's governance of the world? What, what, what do you think about how God is doing in his sovereignty? If we're honest, as we look around, things seem pretty crazy, don't they? And out of control. But are they? Are they really? Are they as near as bad as they could be? Has the sea gone as far as it would like to go? Has it claimed as much land as it would like to claim? Has any group of people accomplished the awful things that they set out to accomplish? No. No, the Lord is still reigning on high. He still is the king of glory. He still is in control and holds all things together and won't let them blow apart. And that is good news to us. See, we are bad students of history. How long ago was it that the Reich rose up and Hitler declared himself God? How long ago was it that Stalin rose and shed the blood of 14 million people and declared himself God? Where are they now? How did their project go? Germany's gone from the planet, right? There's no Germany anymore. Nobody speaks German anymore. We don't have any baklava. We don't have any of that kind of stuff. Is that Greek? Did I just miss that? I confess I missed that cultural reference. <laughs> we still have Helen though, right? Which is, which is German. All right. But notice we are poor students of history when things could have gone completely off the rails and blown completely apart, did they? Why haven't they? If any of you, like I prayed earlier, if any of you know anything about church history, why is there still a church? Read just the 13th and 14th century. Why does anybody trust God after that? Why does any African-American attend church ever, given how we treated them in this country in slavery? Not because of ignorance, but because the Lord who is God reigns on high. So that is comforting to us. And we've got to remember we are but a, looking at but a small snapshot, and we need to be good students of history. And that helps us to remember how good God really is. John Hartley, as he talks about these chapters, says, whereas the first speech, meaning what we dealt with last week, addresses the issue of God's gracious and just maintenance of the world, 
The second looks at the cosmic dimensions of Job's plight. In the first speech, Yahweh emphasized that he put justice in the fabric of the created order. In the second speech, Yahweh demonstrates that he has the power to execute his justice. In God, power and justice are not at odds as they are in human beings. In him, they are complementary qualities that accomplish the greatest good for the entire world. Again, how many of you would truly be just if it was you who held the guillotine? How many of you would know when to be gracious? You're, let's just do, those of you who are parents, how are you doing with your justice and your power? I can tell you, uh, we are least among you. We did horrible with it at times. We were horrific tyrants at times, and we were laissez-faire too often. We couldn't figure it out to save our lives. And in God's grace, both of our children are still alive and talk to us. And that's, that's okay, and that took some time, and there's some blood on those tracks. But you know as a parent, you know you don't understand how to balance these well. And you're constantly at odds. And so, we too are no different, but praise God, God is different than us. He is wholly other than us. He can balance justice and power in perfect measure. So as we turn to the text, keep that in mind. As we look at God, who is going to show Job two of his greatest creatures after he has a discussion with him about his ability to save himself, he's going to teach him something from those creatures that we too need to learn. So if you would, hear from God's word this morning, begin in Job 40, verses 6 through 14. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowing of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So for those of you who are wondering, hey, how can I save myself? There it is. That's it. That's the formula. Simple math, right? All you got to do, all you got to do is clothe yourself in glory and splendor, right? That's, that's pretty easy to, to dress snappy, to, to wear something nice. And then all you got to do is root out everybody that's wicked. And then all you got to do is do away with them. And then you will be able to save yourself. So tell me, who goes? Who would you get rid of? See, here's the problem. What we would do is we, we would, there's a couple of people that we're probably on the fence about, right? Like there's a few that we know, yeah, I'd definitely get rid of them. There's no, no, no questioning that whatsoever. Cam Newton and so on. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but, but, but there's a, a whole bunch of people that we're really not too sure about. And some of them are family members. So would you take care of them just in case and hope you're right? 
How would you know who exactly to get rid of so that you could be holy and everything made new again? It's a tough proposition, isn't it? Because if you get it wrong, then another God will have to come and take you out for having gotten it wrong. See, none of us can save ourselves. This is truly the answer to the question, can man save himself? The answer is no. No, because you lack the attributes necessary to be able to accomplish what is necessary for you to be saved. What are the attributes that are necessary in order to be able to purge this world of all who are truly wicked? What must you be? Well, for starters, it'd probably help if you knew a bunch of stuff, right? Like you could read people's hearts without them saying anything. We call that omniscience. That means the ability to know everything. And that's helpful, right? If you're going to get rid of the ones who are wicked, you got to know who they are. Well, there's another problem. you got to kind of be everywhere at the same time too, right? Because it's a great big old world and there's billions of people. It's hard to keep track of all that stuff. If you got to do it one person at a time, you're probably going to die before you make it all the way around the world and have checked everybody's heart. So it also helps if you were... I don't know, omnipresent. That means your ability to be everywhere at once. That'd cut down on time, wouldn't it? And make it possible. Well, there's another problem you would need to be. So if you're just omniscient and you're just omnipresent, that's great, but what happens if someone kills you? Golly, project's over. You failed. You don't get saved. Ah, here you go. You gotta be eternal on top of that. That means you can't die. Well, that's just three of the attributes so far. Let me ask you, how are you doing so far? How many gods do we have in here? That's right, none. None of you, none of us, but there is one. There is one who is omniscient. There is one who is omnipresent. There is one who is eternal, who will not die. There's one who is unchanging, so his justice is not on a sliding scale like it would be for us. There is one who is loving, and steadfast and faithful to all that he said he would do, which is good news to us. This is the God we should revere. This is the God that we should worship and grant our all. Now remember, he's asking Job a question Job has already answered. When did he answer it? Way, way, way back in Job 9, he said, I need an arbiter. And then he answered it again when he said, I need a redeemer. See, Job doesn't have what it takes to save himself. You and I do not have what it takes to save ourselves. We don't. The Lord is being gracious in revealing to Job that while he cannot save himself, there is one who can. And in this, God is being so gracious. And aren't there times where you need to dress for action? And be confronted with the fact that you think you're God? Don't you sometimes need to be confronted with the reality that you can't save yourself? And that you are not just in and of yourself, and that you are not wise in and of yourself. We all need, at times, to be reminded not that we are inconsequential but that we are in a creator-creature relationship and we are the creature, not the creator. 
God is not trying to so diminish Job that he becomes inconsequential. He's actually trying to raise him up to be what he created him to be in Psalm 8. The crown jewel of creation. The true human form that bears the image of the glorious God. It is a grand distortion when the humans try to declare their own godness in their own image. That is hideous. So God is saying, I want you to stand in glory, not be crushed by your own brokenness and sin and inability. So listen to what Gustavo Gutierrez says about this passage. He says, Yahweh's question amounts to saying, do you, Job, persist in staying locked into a world of easy explanations? Let me ask you that. Are you trying to persist in being locked into a world of simple math and easy explanation where you cannot be reached, where you cannot be challenged? Are you the arbiter who determines what of God's word can speak to you? I would hope not. He goes on. Are you going to dispute my right to control what comes upon you? Are you trying to imprison my free and gratuitous love in your theological concepts? Do you want to make yourself judge over my actions in that kind of universe? God would not be God. You understand that the thing that Job or us in doing the take away from God the very things that we need from him to sustain us, to build us. We become less when God is made less of. So, what attributes, again, I ask you, are required to govern this world well? That's important. It is that God that you want to worship, the God who has those attributes to truly bring about justice and wisdom. And to my knowledge, there is only one God. And that is Yahweh. That is the living God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Turn back to the text with me as God is going to present to Job one of his creatures. He's going to present to him the alpha creature, the creature that is, that is the, the, the prime creature, if you will, the most, the most uh, kind of neutral creature. And he's going to use this creature, behemoth, to illustrate to Job, Job, you can't control even this creature, much less could you control me. So listen to what God says to him. He says, behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscle of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus tree covers him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if there is a river, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Now, there is a great amount of debate among commentators about what behemoth is. Some say it's gotta be a hippopotamus. 
He just sounds like a hippopotamus. Some say, no, 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 no. It's a crocodile because of that tail thing. A hippopotamus tail, if you have ever seen a hippopotamus, it's kind of small. It's kind of like a little pig's tail. It just wags back and forth. doesn't do a whole lot. doesn't fit the description. But a, a, a crocodile's or alligator's tail could. Some say, no, 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 no. This is a brontosaurus. Okay, maybe. Some say, no, it's, it's not a created thing at all. It's, it's a cosmic force that's being represented. But there's a problem with that interpretation, right? The text says, I have created behemoth as I have created you. Job is not a fictional character. Whatever this thing is, it's big and it's not to be played with. And the word behemoth doesn't necessarily give us any more insight. Actually, behemoth in the Hebrew is a plural word for herd or herd of cows. But since there's the the article here, it tells us it is the, the beast that is primary. This is a primary beast of land. And God is saying, Job, does the primary beast of land covenant with you? Does he obey you, Job? Let the one who created him draw near with his sword. God is also saying, this is not a beast that I had to defeat in order to make it submit to me. It submits to me because I created it. What lesson is that for us? We too should submit to the Lord because he has created us. We too should submit to the Lord because he provides for us. Listen, all of the things, if you go back and read that, look at all the things that are provided for behemoth. Did behemoth provide those things for himself? Did he grow all of that stuff on the mountains that he could eat? All the grass? Who does that? What did we learn from Job 38 and 39? Where does all that stuff come from? The Lord God provides it. And we who are created just like Behemoth should also submit recognizing in faith that the Lord provides all that we need. Amen? And so what we learn from this creature is that Job doesn't control him, God does. And we also learn that Job doesn't control or can save himself, only God can. And it is whether or not we trust in that reality that is most important. So as you are here this morning, I I, I can't help but ask the question, what is it that you place your trust in? Who created you? Who made you? Who has say over you? Do you provide all that you provide for you? Can you say that everything that you have has come purely by your hand? Can you be honest and say that? From where does it come? Who sustains you? Who keeps you from blowing apart and falling off of this planet? The Lord who created you does in great grace and mercy. You too, we too should submit in reverence and awe. Listen to what David Atkinson, uh, Old Testament scholar, says of this passage. He says, just as we cannot control the behemoth, though it is part of God's creation, so we cannot control or even understand some of the deep questions of human suffering. There are some things which have, by their very nature, to be left within the mystery of God. See, because we don't control all things, we can't control the questions, we can't control the outcomes, and there has to be a level of trust Even if you were to rage against the Lord your God, what would it gain you? You would just look like Dan and Forrest Gump up in the crow's nest screaming at the storm. You wouldn't get anywhere with that. But faith carries us much further. 
Faith offers hope in the midst of the darkness. And we know we're not in control. How many of you would honestly say, man, I struggle with wanting to be in control? I really, I really feel like I could govern this whole thing so much better than God. But remember your attribute problem. How many of you have ever been in politics? Ever tried to just manage a city? Manage a town? Manage, how many of you feel like you're being just overwhelmed trying to manage a household? You recognize parents, don't you? You are not in control. Now, the inmates aren't exactly running the asylum just yet, but you recognize that you aren't ultimately in control. You don't get to dictate everything, but there is one who does, and that one loves us, and that is good. Let's turn back to the text and look at the second creature, which is Leviathan. Remember, Leviathan was mentioned earlier on in Job. Remember, Job called for Leviathan, right? He said, I wish that Leviathan would rise and erase the day from history on which I was born, that he would consume in chaos the very creation for my benefit. Leviathan is mentioned a number of places throughout Scripture. Again, like Behemoth, we're not real sure what it is. We can have opinions, and you can have strong opinions about it, but you can't be sure. And so, as we look at this text, don't be so concerned with what he is, but what he represents and what God says of him and what it teaches us about God himself. Beginning in 41.1, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? We know the answer to that question, right? Did Leviathan come when Job called? No, he didn't. Or press down his tongue with a cord. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? to take him for your servant forever. Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even in the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. Let me pause there for just a second and unpack a little bit of what we've got going on. So God uses Leviathan as not... Unlike Behemoth, Behemoth is a a fairly, uh, not necessarily benevolent, but a neutral creature. He doesn't cause problems, but he is powerful. Leviathan is very different. Leviathan, as we're going to see a little bit later, he is fierce and awful and would destroy man if he laid his hand upon him. Leviathan, as many commentators say, is at minimum a representation of the cosmic forces of evil or chaos. Maybe he's a crocodile. Maybe he's some sort of dinosaur. Uh, Maybe he is some sort of sea creature that we have not yet discovered. Who knows? Either way, here's what we do know. He is not something that we should play with. He is not something that we could stand before. You are not going to charge hell with a water pistol. You should not call for Satan to bring everything he's got. No, you shouldn't. 
because the roaring lion is far more powerful than you. And though you be in Christ, there could be a cost. No, Leviathan represents a force that we should never trifle with, that we should recognize as greater than ourselves. But here's the good news. Is Leviathan penultimate? Is Leviathan primary? No, he is not. There is one who can, who can take him and put him on a string like a little bird and let his children play with him. There is one who determines exactly what Leviathan can and cannot do in this world. That is good news to us. We have not been left to fend for ourselves. No, the Lord of all creation, the King of glory, tells Leviathan what he can and cannot do and how far he can go. The one who would make us tremble and cause us to flee if he were to emerge from the waters and confront us. And so here God is saying, you would not want what you're asking for. You don't want to fight a force such as Leviathan, and even more so, you don't want to fight me. And he's not saying that as one who longs to and enjoys destroying his people. Remember Ezekiel 18 where he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would rather you repent and live. That's good news. What he's saying is don't fight against that which loves you. Don't fight against that which is trying to redeem you. Don't fight against the one who can grant you what you are searching for, joy and peace in what you were created to be. Who would give to God? Who should God repay when all of creation is his? He's making Job understand there is a creator-creature distinction, and that is healthy for us. We radicalize individualistic Westerners who wrestle so much with being told what to do. I really appreciated one of you came to me this week and said, I'm really struggling with how God opens up on Job. It sounds like he is attacking him. See, we're just not used to being spoke to sternly. None of us likes for someone to come and say, let me tell you something. You don't know what you're talking about. We would much rather the therapeutic or the not so therapeutic approach, the, I mean, have you really thought about that? Have you looked at all of the options, maybe read nine or 10,000 books just to stall so I don't actually have to answer your question? Nobody likes to be confronted. Nobody likes to be uh, told that they don't know or they may be wrong. But we should be in humility, the people who say, please, by all means, Lord, come and tell us where we have our theology wrong. What do we have wrong about you that is keeping us from being more alive? How are we dying when we should be living? And how would you know, you finite being, if the infinite did not speak it to you? See, we should desire not a battle with the Lord, but a relationship. Yahweh, the covenant God, we should long for him to have access to our lives and to show us where we are coming apart at the seams. See, this is the great lie that has crept into our culture and it permeates our children from the ground up. Think about it. We've accepted it as normative. Kids, you don't have to listen to us. We're just old and, you know, archaic and foolish. 
Why would you want to listen to me on a, a topic like sexuality? Why don't you go ask some other 12-year-old who has no earthly idea? That'd be brilliant. Well, why would you want to talk to me about uh, drugs? Because God knows I spent my whole life in the middle of it and watched people die from it. No, no, no. You go ask another 14-year-old who smoked one joint because he knows. Brilliant. In the same way, we do it with theology, don't we? T. David Gordon tells a great story about some Jehovah's Witnesses who came to his house. And if you know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, usually there's a young person and they're the ones kind of out front, interestingly. And so this 18-year-old is talking to T. David Gordon who teaches Greek and has studied it for 30 years. If you know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, what's the premise on John 1? No, 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 it's not, he's not, he's not God. He's a God. He is one of many sons of God. Like, it all hinges on this really ridiculous thing that came up in 1930. Like, we were ignorant of Christianity for, I don't know, how many thousands of years. It took some guy in 1930 who actually was discredited and proved to be an absolute charlatan and kicked out of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and everything changed except for that, because you could trust that, right? Because you've studied Greek. Like, T. David Gordon's like, wait a minute, let me see. So he brings out his New Testament Greek and shows the young man, he says, well, teach me, show me. And the kid starts backing up and he looks at the older one. The older one doesn't know either because he hasn't studied it either. And T. David Gordon says, why is it that you think you could come and teach me? Why don't you learn? See, we don't like that. See, as you hear that story, you're thinking, I'm glad I'm not that kid. You don't like for anybody to come to you and say, hold on a second. WebMD may not be accurate. I've practiced physical therapy for 15 years, studied it at the postgraduate level, but you know how to stretch your hamstring better than I do. Okay. I get it. That's just an example. We do it in lots of things, right? And so where, the, how does that bleed into everything? It bleeds into our theology, doesn't it? God can't tell us how to live. What does he know about living? What does he know about parenting? <laughs> Maybe several thousand years of several billion people? I don't know. What does he know about marriage? What does God know about marriage? I, maybe if you read that Old Testament, you'd find out about covenant and marriage and all that fun stuff. That he's endured and loved a wife who went after lovers less wild, which you probably have never done. But you don't want to listen to him. What does he know? See, we've got to be confronted with our arrogance. We've got to remember that no, we don't know. And there is an expert. And there is a word that it speaks to us. And there are things that we need to humble ourselves under and we need to be willing to submit to and admit in our pride that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot control behemoth, we cannot control Leviathan, we cannot control evil. In fact, if we're honest, we can't hardly control anything which scares us to death and makes us neurotic messes. Listen to what Francis Anderson has to say about this passage. I won't take the time to read the rest of it. You do that on your own. I think we read the key portion of it. Um, the only thing I do want to read is, is the very end of the chapter. Let me do this. Um, he says, uh, verses 33 and 34, On earth there is not his being Leviathan's like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. See, if you want to be a son of, or daughter of pride, you want to go your own way, you have a king, and his name is Leviathan. And his 
Concern is your destruction, not your exaltation, by the way. Right? I've said this before. Satan is not looking for followers. He's looking for food. Satan doesn't need you because you're going to mess up the project. His best bet is to erase you because you bear God's image. And he letting you live runs the risk of that turning around at some point in time. So he'd much rather extinguish you. Read Revelation 12. His desire is not to have you join in his project so that you too could be exalted. No, there's only one king. And he needs no follower. So this king is your king if you demand to go and know your own way. If not, if you can humble yourself as Job has done and will continue to do, which we will see next week, then you have a king who loves you, who wants to exalt you and crown you. Listen at that language. Crown you with honor and glory. Remember when he asked Job, why don't you clothe yourself in majesty and splendor? You should have heard Matthew 6 ringing in your ears. Look at the lilies of the field, how they're clothed in majesty and splendor. How much greater are you, son or daughter of the most high God? You want to be exalted? Bow your knee to the true king of glory who loves you and desires more for you than you could ever imagine. Submit yourself to doing the theology that comes from a relationship with God and living out what he says. I don't want that to be missed. This is not purely cognitive what we do. This is not purely about knowledge. That's the risk we run doing what we do. Being in the PCA, we can be brains on sticks and not much else. I don't want that for us. I don't want that for you. Where you will see Scripture come alive is in serving and loving and wrestling with other people. Where you will see it come alive is in the risk-taking that comes from living the missional life, caring for others is greater than yourself. Where you will see it is in worship, where you come expectant and not getting tangled up in the syncopation of how we did one version of one song that you were used to back when your grandmother used to do it in that little Baptist church down in Waycross or wherever. Don't get tangled up in all that nonsense. Come expecting the king of glory to be present with his people as he promised he would do regardless of the vessels who usher him in. And so, we have to be careful that when we question the Lord, when we come seeking answers, that we do it in reverence. How do we know? How do we know when it's become irreverent and unhealthy, our questioning? Well, anytime that God's glory is not your main concern, that's how you know. Anytime that you're not looking for restoration and reconciliation with him, anytime you're not giving him the benefit of the doubt, you are arcing toward irreverence. He's big enough to handle it, and hopefully you are small enough to repent and submit when it becomes clear to you. So what should we learn from these passages? One, we don't possess the necessary attributes to govern this world with wisdom and justice. Two, we can't control benign forces, much less malevolent forces, which evidences our limitedness. Three, our limitedness should keep us humble and reverent in our questioning of God. Listen to D.A. Carson. He says, the argument then is that if Job is to charge God with injustice, he must do so from the secure stance of his own superior justice. 
And if he cannot subdue these beasts, let alone the cosmic forces they represent, he does not enjoy such a stance, and it is therefore displaying extraordinary arrogance to call justice, God's justice into question. Now, the Lord doesn't leave us after the charge has been leveled of arrogance, does he? He grants us the humility we need in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the beauty of how he works to save us and redeem us. If you're wrestling at all this morning, we would love to talk to you, spend some time with you. Yes, I have the pastor's lunch with the college students, but I guarantee it can wait. And there's not just me that you can talk to, any of our elders or leaders. There'll be a team in the back to pray for you. So if you need prayer on any of this today, get it before you go. Don't worry about all the chairs being put away. We've got people who are going to take care of that. We're not rushing anybody out of here. Take the time today to receive what it is you need in the glory of God. Submit yourself today. Confront your own pride with the glory of God. Let it be confronted in the power of the Spirit so that you could walk in newness of life. Amen? Let's pray.